How you guys doing? Oh man, I'm super good. Hey, did you guys have a good day today? Woo! Hey, I have had so much fun with you guys so far this week. We're going to keep the good times rolling. This, the, uh, today I had the time to kind of walk around and just watch. I love just watching. People watching is like a great activity. I don't sit super well, but when I do sit, I like to watch what other people do. It's, it's really fun. And so I got to watch you guys having a blast today. And before we go any further, um, I just want to acknowledge the counselors in this room. Uh, you guys, man, these counselors are giving it everything that they got. I saw it on the rec field. I saw it in the colorful ooze game that happened, man. Can we just appreciate the counselors in the room? Man, this is a great group. This is a great group. So let me just recap. Let me recap where we were last night. Remember, we talked about perseverance, and we talked about these three characters, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they went into the fiery furnace. Where we left off was Nebuchadnezzar was angry with them, and so he had it turned up seven times hotter. And as his guards were bringing these three men from Judah over to the fiery furnace, those guards, the strongest one that he had at his disposal, they perished just from the heat being outside of the furnace, and those three fell in. We talked about the fact that we will go through hard things in this world, but we do not go through them alone. We have a God that desires to walk next to us, and if he's going to call us to do something, he's not going to allow us to do it alone, but he's going to provide the strength and the courage and the, the energy, the stamina to, to live out the things that he's, he's calling us to do. In Daniel chapter 3, that story ends this way. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. My friends, so far we've seen a few times where King Nebuchadnezzar has had the opportunity to see with his own eyes miracles of God. Whether it's Daniel being able to interpret his dream or whether it's this moment right here, King Nebuchadnezzar has recognized the power and authority that the God of the people from Judah possesses. He sees it. He sees it with his own eyes. He even acknowledges it with his mouth, but he doesn't accept that God as his own God because he's firmly planted on that throne in his own life. My friends, that was me for 19 years of my life because every single one of us with every single day that we spend on this planet, we interact with God's miracles. They may not seem as huge as maybe three guys getting tossed in the fire and then being completely unharmed by it. But the fact that we got up today, had air to breathe, had water to drink, 
had muscles with enough, enough strength to carry us from one spot to another. The fact that we look outside and we see these giant trees that have been here long before we were here, and they'll be here long after we are no longer here. The fact that we can look up into the sky and we can see with our eyes some clouds, and at night we see some stars, and those stars just fill the expanse of space, both known and unknown. And the God that we serve controls it all, sustains it all, and created it all. And you and I live in a world that sees with our very own eyes, just like Nebuchadnezzar, and denies that God, denies his power and his authority and his existence. And really the root of that denial in my own life for the first 19 years, in Nebuchadnezzar's life, and in a lot of our lives, is pride. It's because we want to sit where God deserves to sit. It's because we want to choose our own right and wrong. It's because we don't want to acknowledge that there might be a being in this universe somewhere that is more powerful and more knowledgeable than we are. King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 has yet another dream. See, even though this, this king doesn't acknowledge God, God is working on the heart of this individual. He really wants to teach this guy something. And here's the thing about our God. He is a persistent God, and he will not kick down the door of your life. But if there's ever a moment where your heart is softened enough and your mind is open enough that you just crack that door of your heart open a little bit, he will flow in and he will fill every space possible with his peace and his joy and his hope. And so in his persistence, he is pursuing a pagan king named King Nebuchadnezzar. He has a dream in Daniel chapter 4. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 4 for the bulk of tonight, but we're going to do a little dance. And if you haven't figured it out yet, I like to bounce around all over the place, and I appreciate you all trying to stay with me. Daniel chapter 4. Let me give you a little highlight. King comes to Daniel yet again. Now Daniel is a very, very trusted advisor of this pagan king. He is the, the right-hand man of King Nebuchadnezzar. He turns to him for everything. And so now... This king has another dream that shakes him to his core, just like a couple of chapters ago. And he comes to Daniel, and he wants him to interpret this dream, but this time he gives him a little nuance of what's going on. He tells him about this big tree, and that this tree has its limbs stripped and cut off at the stump, but the stump is left in the ground. And then there's this wild animal figure that runs around and eats grass like an ox, and it's covered with this dew-like substance. And Daniel does what he does. He comes before his God, knowing that this is far beyond his abilities. So he calls out to God. And this is what it says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 27. It says, Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. See, Daniel already knows what this dream is. God has already spoken. He's already interpreted it. And he knows that King Nebuchadnezzar is going to have a hard time accepting this news. Please accept my advice. Repent of your sins by doing what is right, and repent of your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Daniel, before he delivers the interpretation of the dream from God to King Nebuchadnezzar, he says, hey bud, 
It'd be a really good idea if you repented. And that's not a word that we use a lot. Maybe, maybe you guys have a, have a church background where you use that word quite a bit. But for those of us that don't, let me describe what repentance is in our life. It's flipping a 180. If you are unfamiliar with what a 180 is, it's a full turn. You're heading one direction, and then you're turning, and you're basically going back where you came from. In Wagon Train, we have this tradition. I told you guys I used to work at this camp called Wagon Train. It's right up the hill. It's for third through sixth graders or third through fifth graders, depending on your school structure. But we get these kids, and it's a very, very Let's, let, let's just call it what it is. It's a dirty camp, all right? It's, it's got dirt everywhere. We love dirt. We play in it. We play all sorts of games where kids roll around in it. And kids that age, they're not too fond of showers. But yet, we want to give the best version of those kids back to their parents. So when I worked at Wagon Train, we had a tradition on Friday night called the Whirlpool, where we got every single kid and counselor in the pool at the same time. And a lot of these kids hadn't had a shower all week long. And so... We start, we get them in the pool, and then whoever's emceeing goes, all right, everybody walk this way, and everybody starts walking, and all 250 of us are just walking like this, and we're just going, and we're going, and we're going, and with that many bodies moving, all of a sudden, there's a good current built up, and then all of a sudden, the MC goes, okay, now change directions, and you repent, you flip a 180, and now the current just blasts all the dirt and snot and loose hair and band-aids all into the pool so that when you get on the bus the next day and you go give mom and dad a hug, you are quasi-clean. Okay? So Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar, my friend, repent of your sins and do what is right. Repent of your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. For each and every one of us, what it looks like to repent is to step off the path that we've chosen for our lives and step onto the path that God has designed for our lives as we trust Him over ourselves. Let's continue on. This is, this is chapter 4, verse 28. It says, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. All of this. So the tree that was big had all the limbs removed. That represented the, the kingdom of Babylonia. And then it was lopped off, right? Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler, was the authority of that king. He had risen in power and prestige. People knew his name worldwide, but he was going to be humbled. He was going to be stripped of that power. All of his royal subjects and servants were no longer going to look to him for anything because he was going to be reduced to an animal-like figure that roamed among the fields and ate grass like an oxen, and he would be covered with the dew of heaven and Daniel said this to this king but yet he did not take his his trusted servants advice and one verse later it says all this happened to king Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon he said is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. And in a statement like that, you see the root of sin in his life. 
And that same root exists in each and every one of our lives. That's pride. It's been there from the beginning. We talked about when sin entered the world and God chose a tree and said, don't eat of that. The vehicle that drove Adam and Eve to eat of that tree is their own pride. They wanted to be able to choose their own right and wrong. They wanted to be able to call something good, even though the only being that had called anything good up to that point was God himself as he looked upon the thing that he had created. Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the rooftops, looking at the splendorous Babylon. And all he can help but think about is how mighty he is and how much he has accomplished. But that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm going to read the first two verses that we read together this week. This is it. Daniel 1, 1 and 2. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Here's what I wanted you to hear. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. God delivered Judah to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar would not have been able to overpower Judah no matter how powerful he became, no matter how many subjects he had at his disposal. If God had not planned it that way, if it was not his will for it to be done, Nebuchadnezzar would have been snuffed out and we would not know his name and we would not know the splendor of Babylon if it wasn't something that God was using to grab his people's attention. But Nebuchadnezzar looks at it and goes, look at the thing that I have built. 31. Even as the words were still on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people, and you will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Basically saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, there is nothing special about you except for the fact that God chose you to do his will. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. I love God's urgency. That's one word. You know what? If you have your Bible open, highlight or underline immediately. I promise you, as you continue following after Jesus and digging into his word, you're going to see that word a lot in scripture because we serve a God of urgency who works in accordance with his will and her, his purposes and his plans. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. <laughs> that sounds weird, right? Can we agree on that? That sounds strange. Nebuchadnezzar sounds like he went from a dude that lived a life of comfort, wrapped in purple robes, eating grapes with people fanning him, to some wild beast that no one could ever think up to put in some sort of weird fantasy novel. King Nebuchadnezzar was moved from powerful to powerless 
in the blink of an eye. My friends, I want to make a few statements tonight, and I want you all to hear them. Because tonight we're talking about sin. And sin is something that we have to wrestle with. It's not a fun subject to talk about. It's a necessary subject to talk about. And when it comes to the sin in our lives, you and I are powerless to fight against it. If you and I want to rely on just ourselves to battle against the sin that exists in our hearts and in our thoughts and in our, in our being, it's like entering into a fight with all of your limbs tied behind your back. You are not going to win, no matter how hard you struggle and no matter how strong you might think that you are. And some of you are probably sitting there right now and you're probably thinking, well, I don't have a problem with sin. I've never murdered anybody. Well, I'm grateful for that. Believe me, because my kids are here. I think I could take you, but my kids are here, and they might have a problem. The fact that you haven't murdered anybody does not mean that you have not sinned. The fact that you haven't stolen anything from anybody does not mean that you have not sinned. We all have a sin problem, and how do I know? Because I myself, as a 38-year-old dude, have a hard time living up to my own standard for my life, how in the world, in my own strength, am I supposed to live up to his standard for my life? We all have a sin problem. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is of this eager guy, this guy who had every possession that he had ever wanted in this world. He's known as the rich young ruler. We don't know his name, but that's all we know about it. And if, if God's love letter to us chooses to describe him as rich young ruler, this guy's probably a rich young ruler like nothing else the world has ever seen, at least at this time period. And my friends, I want to tell you this. In comparison to him, you and I are all rich young rulers. We have technology this guy could have never dreamed about, right? We have these things that have engines in them and wheels and steering wheels that move us from point A to point B. This guy would be completely baffled by that. And in those things that have the steering wheels and the engines and the wheels that move us from point A to point B, we have this little button, and you push it, and then all of a sudden this magical door opens up, and then your thing that has a steering wheel and an engine and, and, and tires moves into this little cabinet for itself, and then you push that button again, and that magical door closes. This rich young ruler would be like, what is happening? And then you have these devices in your pockets where you can look at someone else and talk to them, and they can hear you, and they can talk back. And then you could push this app and you could order something from, let's just say, Domino's. And then all of a sudden, this pimply teenager shows up in his vehicle and he has your food for you. This guy could never dream of that kind of riches. But yet the Bible, God's love letter to us, describes him as the rich young ruler, which means he wants for nothing. But yet he wants for everything because he runs to Jesus with a question. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 17. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. This shows you the, the eagerness of this ruler because people of wealth and people of prestige and people of power in this day and age did not run. And they certainly did not allow themselves to touch the dirt. Servants ran for them. This guy was so eager to ask a question of God that he threw all of the society's standards to the side and he ran to Jesus. 
And he fell on his knees before him and he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's his question. And I want you to underline, if you're there, I want you to underline or maybe write it down for later, the phrase, what must I do? That right there, my friends, is a prideful statement. This rich young ruler, in his, in his perspective of the world around him, it all depends on his ability to perform, to earn. See, we talked about it once before, but I want to remind you again that all other religions in the world basically operate the same. They all say this, no matter what sort of doctrine or theology they have, they all say, this is what I have to do to earn my way to God. Whereas Christianity is the only one that's different. Following after Jesus is the only one that's different because it's not about you and I. It's not about performance. It's nothing about that except what Jesus has done for us. Christianity says this, this is what God has done to work his way to us in and through the person of Jesus. It's a relationship. It's not about performance. Because if it were about performance, we would never be able to earn our way to God. Verse 18, this is Jesus' response. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud and honor your father and mother. Verse 20. The young man's response. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. This guy's super excited. He came to Jesus. He, he humiliated himself and ran and fell on the dirt in front of Jesus with this question that obviously has kept him up at night because he has everything on this planet that he could ever want, but yet his heart is empty and he knows that everything is going to perish and he needs something greater than anything that he's achieved on his own. And so he comes to this teacher that's not like any other teacher and he says, what do I have to do? And Jesus reminds him of these great commandments. And he says, I've done that my whole life. And at this point, he's probably feeling pretty good. He probably feels like he's done enough that he's measured up, that he's met a standard. His chest might be a little bit puffed out. My friends, in this life, God is opposed to earning. You and I can't do enough. We can't be good enough to earn a position with a righteous and holy God. Why? Because of the sin in our life. You and I, if left to our own devices, we cannot build a tower high enough because a holy and righteous God cannot have any part of sin. We are separated without someone to fill that gap. God is opposed to earning. However, he is not opposed to effort. What does effort look like for you and I? To deny ourselves to deny ourselves and pick up our cross daily and follow after Jesus, even if it's uncomfortable. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus sees this man. He sees his heart. He knows his thoughts. He knows his desires. And Jesus is going to invite him into something in the same way that he invites us into something. And Jesus has a, 
has a, a little bit of knowledge as to what this guy's response is going to be, but nevertheless, he loves this guy. He sees him as someone who is lost, and Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. He says, follow me. You want to inherit eternal life? Follow me. You want to have your hole in your heart filled because you can't do it with anything else you've earned so far? Then cast it all aside as if it's garbage and grab hold of the one thing in this life that matters, and that's me. Follow me. I'm greater than you, rich young ruler. Trust me above yourselves. Trust me above your possessions. Trust me above your circumstance. And let's do this thing. Allow me to fill you with hope and joy and peace and a future that you long for. All you have to do is lay it all down. Look, following after Jesus is a free gift, but it's a free gift that will cost you everything. And that rich young ruler couldn't handle that. Because if he were to cast aside everything, that means that he would have had to give up the position of the throne in his life, which he was already firmly planted on. We all have a sin issue. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So really, my friends, what is sin? It's not as simple as not murdering people, although you should not do that. What is sin? It's any word, thought, deed, or action that places glory upon yourself instead of where glory is due, and that is God. He is the only one that is meant to be glorified in and through our lives. Sin is treason against the ultimate authority of all time throughout all the universe. Exodus 20, verse 3 says it this way, You shall not have any other God before me. And so often in our lives, myself included, we are our ultimate ruler and authority until we cast it all aside and lay it all down and pick up a cross and follow Jesus. I told you guys that for 19 years, I was my ruler. I was my God, and I was really bad at it. I chased after the things of this world. I used sports mainly as my vehicle. I had this desire to just please everybody. Popularity, fame, wherever it was going to lead me, I was going to chase it. it. I kept chasing it until I realized it wasn't enough, and so I started chasing other things, substances, relationships. I was really good at a party scene. And I was the life of the party. Why? Because I didn't know how to just exist without being this loud personality that filled the room. I remember one night I was at one of those parties and I mixed a few substances together and my, my body didn't agree with that mix. It needed out. <laughs> I knew enough not to drive home and I had a couple of good friends that took my keys. I'm grateful for them. I started to walk home. Fortunately, I lived in a really small town, and there's not a lot of streets there. So I started to walk home. About halfway there, I started to get sick to my stomach, and so uh, there was a dumpster behind a pizza place, and I threw up in that dumpster. I threw up in that dumpster a few more times. 
And then in my altered state of being, because of the substances that I mixed together, I decided that it was a really good idea to lay down in that dumpster. See, chasing after the things of, the, of this world in my own life ended me up in a dumpster covered by my own vomit, all alone. The things that I chased were people and relationships, acceptance, pats on the back. And here I am, a mess, all alone, no one around me. And I looked up to the sky while I'm sitting in a dumpster. And all those things that I knew about God were rolling around in my brain. And I looked up at the sky and I said, all right, you win. I've tried it my way long enough and my way sucks. It's terrible. It's gotten me nowhere. It's hurt my family. It's hurt my friends. It's hurt myself. And I'm empty and I'm hurting. And I've tried to fill that void that is God-sized with everything but you. And now it's your turn. And I laid it all down. I tossed it all aside. And I picked up my cross and I followed him. Guys, here's the thing about sin. Sin will always keep you longer than you want to stay. Sin will always cost you more than you want to pay. And sin will always lead you to a place that you never thought that you would go. That's how it works. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Wages is something that we earn for ourselves. See, when we try and earn our way to God, the wages that we're actually piling on is death because our best deeds on our best days are filthy rags to him if left to our own strength and our own abilities. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The writer put it this way because we need to know that sin is costly. In Daniel's day in the Old Testament, sin was atoned for by animal sacrifice, by the blood of bulls and rams. God put that into practice. He built out the sacrificial system for his chosen people, not to be a band-aid for some sort of short time until he came up with a better scenario, but it was a visual representation of how gross sin is to God, how costly sin is to the individual, and the fact that it needs to be paid for. But God, in his infinite wisdom, knew that the, that the blood of bulls and the blood of rams was not going to cover sin for all time for all people that he would send his son, that he would give us good news of great joy for all people as he covers sin for all time. That's the gospel. We'll talk about it tomorrow. But the wages had to be paid. Romans 6.23, and I'm reading this again on purpose for those of you that are wondering. For the wages of sin is death. Death is part of this world, but the death that this verse talks about is an eternal separation from the God that created you and loves you more than you can ever understand. My friend, he, uh, he never had kids, and he asked me one day, he said, Kevin, why do you have kids? And I looked at him, and I'm like, what? <laughs> A weird question. And he goes, 
yeah, I mean, kids, they seem like a lot of work. And I said, you have no idea. He said, but, but really, though, why have kids? They're so expensive, and they need things constantly. And, like, forget about your sleep patterns because they're just going to mess all that up. And I looked at him, and I said, yeah, you're batting a 1,000 so far. And he says, but really, though, why have kids? Because you're going to spend, like, 18-plus years raising these kids, and they could grow up, and they could totally just walk away from you, and they could walk away from your values. They could walk away from your God, and they could go, and they could blow their whole life, and they could be some drug addict on the street. They could be some murderer in a prison cell, and you have no control over that outcome. Why would you do that? Why would you subject yourself to that, that you could raise this kid, and you could pour your blood, sweat, tears, and finances into this person's life, and they could just one day wake up and say, I want nothing to do with you, and walk away. Why would you do that? And I'm like, man, this got intense quick. And so I met my friend right where he's at, and I looked at him, dead in the face, and I said, because it's worth the risk. When my kids wake up in the morning and they run into my bedroom and they give me a big old warm hug and they say, Dad, man, I love you. Oh, it's worth the risk. And, and, and when we're walking in a parking lot and my kids on either side grab my hands, because well, we've trained them to do that because cars are scary in parking lots. Man, it's, it's, wor it's worth the risk. And when my kids, for whatever reason, just because they're awesome human beings, decide to make me some art piece or write me some poem, and they just leave it someplace where they know I'm going to find it, and it just fills my heart with joy because, man, I love them and they love me back, oh, it's worth the risk. Here's the thing about this, this life, guys. The greatest question that we could ever wrestle with is not, do I love God enough? <laughs> That's not it. You and I will never love God with the amount that he deserves from us. The greatest question that you and I ought to wrestle with is do we understand how much God loves us? The creator of all things that have ever been are currently being and will ever be, loves you more than you could ever truly understand. No matter who you are, what you've done, or what has been done to you, the God of the universe loves you right where you're at, not where you think that you should be. Lay it all aside. Toss it. It's rubbish. It's garbage compared to him. And let him, with that little crack that you've opened in your heart, start to do something miraculous in your life. Repent. Turn a 180. Those counselors that we gave cheers for earlier today, man, they would love to talk to you about those things that are a part of your life that keep you awake at night. That's what they came for. That's what they want to hear. Man, you have an opportunity to be really, really honest with them, with yourself, and with him. Don't miss it. Let me pray.
Lord God, we thank you and we praise you for the God that you are, the fact that you love us, no matter who we are, what we've done, or what's been done to us, and you're for us. Lord, we've got these sins in our lives, these things that weigh heavy on our hearts, Lord. I pray tonight for these students that they just give them to you, that they toss them by the wayside, that they get out of the driver's seat of their own lives and allow you to take the keys. Lord, would you allow us to pick up our cross daily and follow after you. Thank you for that call in our lives. Thank you for the gift of grace in Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.